0: Prestige and Welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend, colleague, and comrade Derek Davison. And we are here to bring you the news of the world. Derek, I was thinking we need to come up with a catchphrase. I guess our, our catchphrase is on that happy note, but that seems like depressing and it doesn't seem like something that will attract uh, people to listen to the, the, the most beautiful podcast. Well, we're in trying history. to get
1: optimistic people to listen to a podcast about Foreign World affairs. Yeah, affairs. it's just
0: just, just, sad, just sad news. That's um, a weird fit. Well, here's a hell of a transition. Speaking of sad news, why don't uh, we give listeners an update on what's going on in Ukraine? First of all, um, it seems like there might be an oil embargo related to the war, uh, which is pretty interesting given the role that oil has played in American history. And we'll see where this goes. But uh, maybe you could give us a little bit of background of what's going on with
1: that. Uh, well, I mean, the European Union has been talking about an oil embargo for some time now. Germany finally relaxed its opposition um, a couple of weeks ago, suggesting that they would be open to a phased, uh, with a, a phased embargo. So, so sort of, you know, over a period of time, uh, kind of reducing uh, European imports of Russian oil.
2: Germany is not against an oil ban on Russia. Of course, it is a heavy load to bear, but we are ready to do that.
1: Germany was by far the biggest, I mean, you know, Germany it, it runs the EU in many respects. So the, the, um, when they dropped their opposition, that, that put a lot of momentum behind the idea uh, of doing an oil embargo, which would be, um, in terms of sanctions, probably the most serious one uh, that the Europeans have imposed yet. It's certainly in terms of what they have left. To that they could theoretically impose, uh, it is one of the two most serious things they could do. The other being a gas embargo, which is not uh, in the cards yet. <clears throat> so the EU um, put forward a new package. Or the European Commission put forward a new draft. Sanctions package on Wednesday, uh, this included sanctions on Sparebank, which is Russia's largest lender, uh, a few other banks that had hitherto remained untouched, a uh, ban on a couple of Russian media companies broadcasting in the EU, uh, and a few more names uh, added to the EU's Uh, you know, asset freeze, travel ban, blacklist, uh, one of which uh, would be Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. That's uh, somewhat noteworthy. Uh, But this also includes, this draft package also includes the oil embargo. Uh, The plan would be to uh, have divested of Russian oil by the end of uh, 2022. So heading into 2023, you would be uh, Russian oil free.
0: Seems like that would have a Huge effect on Russia, right? Just to give people the consequences of what this would be before we move on.
1: Yes, I mean they're 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 making, especially now since the war has caused oil prices to spike. I mean they're making hundreds of millions of dollars a day, maybe billions, right. maybe a billion or two a day, uh, that just on oil that, exports. Yeah. And that's that's not just the EU. So I mean the EU is a, a large portion of that, but they do export oil to to other places. Uh, but yeah, it would be a very serious. A uh, very serious step that would um, ratchet back some of the the gains that Russia has made, even under these all these other sanctions. Uh, you know, the more expensive their exports, their energy exports are, the uh, better in some respects they're they're doing. Um, the more money they make, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, the issue now is that there are four other countries, at least uh Bulgaria, Czechia or it's the Czech Republic, I'm, I I Czechia just sends shivers up my spine. Uh Hungary and Slovakia have all raised objections to the ban. Um uh, Hungary seems to be completely resistant and that may have to do not just with their uh dependence on Russian oil, which is substantial, but with the fact that Viktor Orbán and and Vladimir Putin are uh buddies uh, to some extent. The other three countries have are all also Highly dependent on Russian oil. Uh, They've raised uh, the possibility of uh, asking for a longer kind of stretch period or kind of wind down period uh, that would obviously undermine. Uh, the effect of the the embargo uh, from the perspective of the ukraine war Um, but they could be given special exemptions so i mean the eu could do something like you know most of us are going to be off russian oil by the end of the year but bulgaria you get two years you know slovakia gets three years whatever hungary you do whatever you want Uh, they could try to do that uh, to appease these these countries and because the eu runs on consensus uh, any one of these countries can can sink this in terms of a, a block wide, like wall Occupy embargo. Wall Street. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so they could try to do special carve outs for countries that that um, you know are are expressing resistance. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean like, for example, Hungary, which has a diplomatic relationship with Russia, in addition to, um, you know, the other the, the oil issue. Uh, that doesn't mean Hungary, for example, wouldn't still say, no, I don't even if you give me a carve out, I don't no, We're not approving this. Um, it also you know, there's also obviously the threat that if the EU does something like this, officially announces something like this, the Russians could just kind of unilaterally say, OK, you're 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 off the tap. Uh, right, which off, would yeah. you know be a huge risk not just to these four countries but to countries like Germany that want the next six months or seven months to to kind of wean themselves uh, off of the supply so so there's a lot still up in the air about this
0: Yeah, and uh, just to, of course, remind listeners, oil has historically been a major cause of war, most famously with the U.S. um, helping cut off oil supplies uh, before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and uh, the Pacific colonies. So this is something to watch, just historically, the role that natural resources play in war escalation. Um, So there recently had been some news coming out about uh, a Mariupol, the city in Ukraine, that uh, has been devastated by the war. Uh, It seems like casualty counts um, uh, in relation to a bombing uh, were, were, are actually way higher than people presumed. Uh, so what's been going on in uh, Mariupol? What's been going on there with casualties and um, the evacuation and everything related to that?
1: So, yeah, there's a there's a story this week uh, about the infamous uh, theater bombing that says uh, there there's evidence of uh, 600 people killed uh, in that bombing, which took place, I think, early on in the war. I can't remember exactly the date uh, that it took place. But, uh, you know, there have been claims. It's been hard to get any kind of firm claim about how many people were in that building, how many people were in there when it was bombed. You know, some of them survived or were, were, were eventually rescued. Uh, but there's, um, I think, an AP, uh, I think it was the AP that, that broke this uh, estimate of 600 killed. So that's, uh, certainly, you know, certainly a chilling uh, report uh, in terms of things that are happening right now in Mariupol. The the focus of attention is obviously still on the Azovstal uh, steelworks, uh, which is uh, where the last Ukrainian combatants have been holed up for, for several weeks now, or a couple of weeks at least, uh, along with some unknown number of civilians. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited Russia last month, supposedly got Vladimir Putin to agree. Well, it turns out, you know, he probably did uh, get Vladimir Putin to agree to allow the UN and the Red Cross to kind of oversee uh, an effort to get those last civilians uh, out of that site before, you know, the Russian military does whatever it's going to do with the, uh, the combatants, mainly uh, at this point, the Azov battalion militia. That effort got started over the weekend. They got uh, about 100 people out, I believe. Uh, but it's been f- fits and starts and stops all week since then. Uh, as you know, they've tried to open up corridors, they've tried to, to impose ceasefires to allow for evacuations, and uh, they've all uh, fallen apart uh, for one reason or another. And here's where you, know, you get sort of dueling narratives. The Russians claim that the Ukrainian fighters are taking advantage of the ceasefires to try to establish uh, better firing positions. The Ukrainians claim the Russians are just kind of, you know, willy-nilly bombarding the the site to kill as many people as possible. Uh, but where things stand now, it seems there are still some number of civilians. I I, I don't know how many. Um, I don't think anybody does their estimates that it could be another 100 or 200. Remain on that site. There is There are still efforts... Uh, being made to get them out of there some of them may be trapped under uh behind rubble or in you know circumstances where they would need to bring in uh, heavy equipment potentially to get them out so that's another complication and the Russians you know I keep saying they're gonna they're gonna uh, call a ceasefire hours long ceasefires they've announced you know they announced I think yesterday uh, plans for Thursday Friday Saturday ceasefire most of the day uh, to allow for evacuations but as far as I can tell uh, here we are on Thursday, and that first day uh, effort uh, fell apart again with shelling and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, exchanges of fire. So it's not a great situation there uh, at Azovstal as it hasn't been for, for some time now.
0: And so Russia has been uh, being actually quite aggressive. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, the nation's attacks on arms shipments
1: so, yeah, in terms of aggression, it's been mostly missiles and airstrikes. Uh, not as much to my understanding, although uh, I have seen reports today, Thursday, that, that there's some uh, kind of artillery battles going on in the Donbass. But, but they've been, they kind of stepped back, I think, a little bit in the Donbass, kind of on the front line, and, and they're concentrating on attacking. Military depots, train stations, basically any infrastructure where one might say uh, store arms that have been brought into the country from the West, or you know, brokered by in deals that were brokered by Western governments, uh, or the the infrastructure that would be necessary to bring things like howitzers, tanks, etc. Uh, across the country from from Western Ukraine where they're coming in to Eastern Ukraine where the front line is. Uh, there've been a number of these. Uh, sorts of attacks over the last few days... The Russians, you know, you never know how how much credence to give either side's reporting here. The Russians say they've hit, you know, hundreds of sites and they've materially uh, impacted the Ukraine's ability to bring these arms in and to get them where they need to go. Uh, The U.S. and the Ukrainians insist that, you know, uh, everything's fine. They haven't really seriously uh, impacted this process. But um, it certainly seems to be the focus of their war effort right now as opposed to. Gaining territory in the Donbass.
0: So it seems like the war didn't proceed as the Russians probably hoped. Probably in the best case war scenario, they would have decapitated uh, Kyiv uh, and they would have basically seized the country's government. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about the failure of Russia to achieve its war aims. But right now, it does seem like Russia is in the process of escalation. Is that correct?
1: Uh, and if so, how does it seem that way? So there's there's a lot of speculation. And the date that's been tossed around for weeks now has been May 9th, which is Victory Day in Russia. It's their World War II celebration, uh, annual World War II celebration. And, and for, for some time, uh, I would say for the first, you know, kind of four or six weeks, after the invasion started, the speculation that I kept seeing was um, that Vladimir Putin wants to be able to declare victory uh, by Victory Day, He wants to hold a big celebration and a parade, and talk about how we denazified uh, Ukraine. And it's another great, you know, World War Two esque. Victory. What declaring victory would look like uh, has been up in the air since, as you say, you know, the initial uh, would look like efforts to take Kiev and maybe you know put in a a new government um, and to to win a, a broader you know broader war uh, don't seem to have gone very well. And now they've been kind of reduced to this grinded out conventional war in the Donbas with uh, some uh, focus on Mariupol and and uh, on Kherson province in southern Ukraine. So now I'm seeing speculation, and there was just a story, uh, I think Reuters ran it yesterday, that that the Russian government actually had to come out and deny, or actually was felt compelled to come out, uh, and deny claims that what they're actually going to do on May 9th now is not declare victory, but declare war on Ukraine. You recall that, although this is a war in every sense, uh, the Russians still... Uh, rhetorically have clung to this designation of special military operation. Uh, Legally, what that means is that that they're somewhat limited in terms of uh, the degree to which they can mobilize the full Russian military and do conscriptions and, uh, you know, sort of the, the full national mobilization. If Putin were to declare war uh, that would enable him to, uh, you know, take this, uh, you know, up a notch, so to speak.
2: The Russian forces in eastern Ukraine uh, have been suffering a massive manpower shortage, so this would allow the president to essentially conscript more forces into the fight uh, and mobilize the general population there in Russia.
1: It would increase the resources of the Russian military that the Russian military has available to it for fighting in Ukraine. It would also, I think, politically. Create an expectation for something much bigger than than what we've seen the Russians doing, uh, you know, in terms of like securing the Donbass and maybe uh, establishing a, a, a corridor to Crimea. Uh, I think the expectation, if you're going to do a full blown war, would be uh, for for victory would be much bigger than that. We should note uh, that it seems that the Russians, in in media and in official statements, have begun to sort of characterize this war less as a war or a, an invasion of Ukraine or something, you know, operation in Ukraine, whatever you want to call it, uh, and more as a conflict between Russia and the West, broadly speaking, which is uh, the kind of rhetoric you would expect to see if a, an escalation like this was in the cards. Uh, the West is not helping <laughs> matters very much. If your your goal is to keep things uh, relatively contained, you you probably don't want the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, uh, talking about how the United States hopes to weaken in Russia uh, via this war, as he did last month. I think that was very, um, you know, saying the quiet part out loud, so to speak, and, and probably unfortunate. Um, you also don't want, as just leaked to the New York Times uh, on Wednesday, you don't want U.S. officials talking about how uh, the U.S. is providing intelligence to the Ukraine, the Ukrainians that is resulting in the deaths of Russian generals. Uh, there have been uh, something like a dozen Russian generals killed during this war. Uh, that's been something that people have tracked and, and been sort of, you know, remarked on On the high number of, of senior officers who have been killed, and, and here we have uh, somebody in the U.S. security establishment helpfully running to the New York Times and saying, that was us, we did that. This is probably not the kind of rhetoric that you want uh, if you want to keep this from becoming a bigger war that, that Russia can justify on the basis of, uh, like, we're fighting the whole whole West. You know.
0: It's just shows the dangers of people saying things like only limiting it to armed shipments is that these things have a tendency to basically expand almost naturally. And I I just want to highlight that um, when people talk about what the U.S. should do in the future in relation to these various wars around the world.
1: That's that's really all I have on that. Um, The possibility of a declaration of war on May 9th, I think, has to be given some credence. Uh, I know the Russians have denied it, but the Russians denied that they were going to invade Ukraine at all, and then they did. So I I don't know how much uh, uh, kind of faith you want to place in anything that they say at this point. I, I don't think it can be completely ruled out. I do think it's politically fraught for for Putin to do something like that. So uh, I'm in sort of a believe-it-when-I-see-it mode on this. (laughs) Putin has been in a fraught mood recently, I would say. Well, he has, yes. (laughs) And, I mean, you know, he's dying of 18 different neurological ailments, so.
0: Uh, So why don't we stay in Europe for a bit and talk about um, the potential accession to NATO of uh, Finland and Sweden and what this might mean for the alliance and what this might mean for the U.S. role in Europe as a whole.
1: So um, we've talked about this in previous weeks. The, The governments of Finland and Sweden are rethinking, they're in the process of rethinking, you know, officially, like they, they you know, announced this, uh, rethinking their historical neutrality and maybe considering the possibility of joining NATO. Uh, it sounds like they're leaning toward joining NATO, but, uh, you know, that's just what I take away from uh, statements and, and stories that I've seen. Um, what's interesting, I think, uh, this developed over the past few days uh, is that there it, it sounds like they're being offered uh, something approaching Article Five protection under you know Article five of the NATO charter, uh, that that level of protection during whatever their accession process would be. So uh, Swedish Foreign minister, and just, uh, that and just Linda, means that if, if they're attacked then the other right. Uh, the they have to attack. Article 5 is attack on yeah. one. Yeah, it's an attack on all. So It's, it's been invoked it's once after 9-11. Clause. Am I remembering that correctly? Correct. 9-11 yeah. is the only instance in, when, in which it's been, invo- uh, been invoked. Uh, so... The Foreign Minister of Sweden on Linda uh, visited Washington on Wednesday. She met with Antony Blinken, uh, you know, best wishes of the of the pod. Pod. Best wishes <laughs> to him for a speedy COVID recovery. She uh, then told Swedish media that Blinken had made some unspecified assurances about Swedish security should uh, should they opt to apply for NATO membership. Uh, this mimics or, or kind of mirrors comments from uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the, the Secretary of General of NATO a few days ago in which he suggested that both Sweden and Finland or Sweden and or Finland, if only one of them uh, agrees to join would be provided with some level of protection, uh, you know, from Russia. I mean, you know, in theory it's about you know protection from anyone, but we're talking about Russia. Uh, should they opt to join NATO? There was a story in Finnish media, Uh, in a Finnish newspaper a few days ago that suggested that the Finnish officials are prepared to uh, announce on the 12th, on May 12th, in some, you know, big grandiose way, uh, that they will be applying to join NATO. I find it hard to believe, uh, and, you know, the Swedish and and Finnish governments have talked about working together on this or at least keeping each other apprised of of what they're doing, and I find it hard to believe that one would join and the other would stay out. So I, I suspect that if... Uh, if that story is true and Finland has decided to make the jump, uh, that Sweden will probably go along as well.
0: From a macro-historical perspective, do you think this is something important? Are we seeing basically the descent of Europe uh, again into these two blocks that are considered to be mutually incomprehensible with one another? Or is this just effectively more of the same and it doesn't really change the geostrategic balance of power within Europe itself?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty big. I think this is these are two countries, unlike... You know, let's say the Balkans, which have yeah. a lot of, you know, lingering Cold War baggage that's made them um, obviously candidates for NATO membership, but uh, tr- problematic candidates for NATO membership and, and candidates who have to uh, work out some things. Uh, Sweden and Finland are, you know, I'm sure people in Brussels have been drooling over the possibility of of bringing either of these countries into NATO for uh, decades now. So uh, this is a pretty big deal. It'll be interesting to see what the accession process is, because, again, you have uh, members of NATO and and I'm thinking basically of Hungary again, uh, who could have some objections here on the basis of uh, not antagonizing Russia. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely invigorating to the NATO alliance to see a couple of countries like this that have been major gets for uh, quite some time finally see or finally decide that it's in their interest to become part of that alliance. So I, I, I do think it's a fairly significant development. So why don't we move a little southeast, and we could talk about Recep
0: Tayyip Erdogan, president of Turkey's visit to Saudi Arabia, uh, and particularly Derek first, of, of course, and as always, if you could tell us what uh, happened, and then maybe if you could place it in a bit of broader context, particularly the the long standing you know feud uh, between Saudi Arabia and Turkey uh, about being the regional hegemon in the Middle East, and as, and this is particularly important given that the United States does actually appear to be kind of disengaging from the Middle East. What does this suggest about these two countries' relationships and the region as a whole?
1: So what happened was uh, Erdogan went to Saudi Arabia um, late last week. He got back on Saturday, uh, had, you know, Grand stories to tell reporters on the flight back to Turkey that uh, he and the Saudi officials he'd met with, including Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, had agreed, in his words, to reactivate a great economic potential through organizations that will bring our investors together. Which, in other words, means the Saudis uh, offered to give him a lot of money uh, <laughs> to invest a lot of money in the Turkish economy. Do you think they uh, invest least in He AP? thinks that they did. Uh, boy, I don't. You know, <laughs> I mean. I've got some BS, buddy, <laughs> give me a call, man. I'm, I'm right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia have had a fraught relationship or kind of perilous relationship for some time now. Um, I guess, you know, without going all the way back to, to you know, the nether history of this, uh, we can start with the, the Arab Spring. Uh, Erdogan, uh, big fan of the Muslim Brotherhood supported Muslim Brotherhood parties throughout the Arab world as they were uh, kind of emerging in these protests that were taking place in 2011 2012 uh, as you know threats to uh, unseat long standing autocracies or uh, even monarchies in some cases especially in Egypt where they actually did for a time uh, manage to become a de- you know lead a democratically elected government before they were overthrown by the the Egyptian military Erdogan Supported these movements partly because he's got an affinity for the Muslim Brotherhood, partly because he has this sort of uh, what people have called neo-Ottomanist foreign policy where he views Turkey as the rightful uh, kind of hegemonic power in the Middle East or at least in the Sunni part of the Middle East, which uh, obviously runs into uh, directly into Saudi gonna kind of pretensions, I guess, or, or you know, some of it's uh, based in reality. Uh, the Saudi belief that they are in fact the rightful hegemonic power in the the Sunni world. Uh, so these two countries were at odds, and the Saudis don't get a, don't have the same affinity for the Muslim Brotherhood. They're pretty uh, somewhat cool to it. They're not quite as overtly hostile toward it as the UAE, for example. But um, MBS and his his. Pal, bin Zayed, and in the UAE, uh, you know, were were for a time very focused on on kind of degrading the Muslim Brotherhood around the uh, around the region. So they didn't get along for that reason. They didn't get along because they were kind of dueling, uh, you know, com- kind of competing with one another for uh, influence in the region. And then, of course, the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul kind of kicked things up to another level. Uh, Khashoggi and Erdogan were friends, that was, you know, one thing. They had a personal relationship. Uh, the fact that this murder was done in Istanbul, admittedly on, you know, I guess a little enclave of Saudi soil, technically in a legal sense, but they did it in Istanbul. It was embarrassing for Erdogan. Um, you know, and he he told us kind of turned his prosecutors loose. They um, he released evidence showing that uh, MBS might, was probably involved and really kind of took the relationship down to, to a, a real nader. They have since started patching things up.
2: Erdogan is trying to drum up financial support from energy-rich Gulf countries.
1: Largely because the Turkish economy is increasingly being flayed by inflation. Uh, Erdogan has a heterodox view on inflation that if you cut interest rates during a time of inflation, that will take care of the inflation. It doesn't Seem to be working. Uh, Most economists say you're supposed to raise interest rates during periods of inflation, but Erdogan doesn't believe in that. Uh, So he's been, you know, kind of running through central bankers to find people who will comply with his wishes to cut rates. Uh, that ha- that isn't that doesn't seem to be arresting the inflationary trends. So the Turkish economy is uh, in pretty dire straits and he's reaching out. he's been reaching out to the two Arab countries that can best help him get out of that, uh, the Saudis and the UAE. And so he's been putting uh, a lot of his rivalry to with them. To bed, I should say. There's also like Turkey and Qatar are, have a, a very close relationship and have had one, and so Qatar's difficulties with the Saudis and the UAE have fed into this as well. I don't need to want to go into any more detail than that, uh, but those are are also have also mostly been healed, so that removes a, another roadblock. Just I think last week or maybe the week before, Turkish prosecutors dropped their inquiry or their investigation into the Hashogji murder. Uh, they said they were transferring it to Saudi Arabia, which. means it's dead, uh, and so they I don't know. Did that. I trust
0: in the Saudi legal yeah, system, yeah, there. Sure. Don't be the so Saudi cynical. Legal
1: Absolutely. Uh, so uh, that was clearly done with an eye toward this trip, particularly, and, and toward uh, building the the Turkish Saudi relationship. So I think basically what you're seeing is is Erdogan crying uncle and and uh, you know kind of accepting uh, that he's going to be a client of, of Saudi Arabia on some level.
0: Which is actually an enormous shift, and I want to pay attention to this more, but I think that could really reshape what the Middle East looks like in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, why don't we briefly mention uh, North Korea, because uh, we at AP think that this is um, in uh, advance of something. But Derek, what happened in North Korea?
1: Uh, yeah, brief, very briefly, they they conducted another weapons test on Wednesday, um, uh, I don't know what it was. I don't know if anybody's confirmed what it was. And I haven't seen any comment from the North Korean South Korean military says it was a ballistic missile, which doesn't really tell you very much. Um, there are a couple of dates coming up that the North Koreans might have wanted to get out and, ahead of and sort of uh, make a statement. One next week, uh, Yoon Suk-yeol is being inaugurated as South Korean president. Uh, and then later this month, Joe Biden is expected to go to South Korea for the first time and kind of meet with him uh, so the North Koreans may have wanted to, to send a little bit of a message, but I also think this is noteworthy, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because we've covered it in, in past weeks, but I think it's noteworthy given all the recent indications that North Korea is trying to move into a, a tactical nuclear weapons. Um, they've been testing uh, what seem like short-range but nuclear-capable Weapons. They don't have a tactical nuclear warhead as yet, uh, but there are signs, there have been signs for several weeks now that they're uh, kind of rebuilding their uh, nuclear testing site, uh, and so they may be gearing up for uh, a, a test explosion at some point in the, the not-too-distant future uh, that would presumably... Be of something, you know, something in the quote unquote low yield or tactical uh, range rather than a, a, a strategic warhead of the, the sort that you would put on an ICBM, let's say.
0: So why don't we actually conclude for the first time on a happy note, which that is the glorious return of the United Kingdom to the Caribbean, (laughs) where it might again rule the British Virgin Islands, a place where I once sailed through. And uh, it's just uh, where I learned that (laughs) I'm not much of a sailor, Derek, you'll you'll be uh, surprised to learn. I know it's surprising, surprising, but what's been going on there?
1: Uh, So, uh, last week on Friday, I believe, there was a, a report uh, was issued, uh, sort of the final report of an inquiry into corruption uh, that was ordered by the governor of the Virgin Islands. Not the current governor, uh, John Rankin, but his predecessor, uh, Augustus Jaspert, Uh very, very British name, I guess. That found that uh, you know corruption. Its its conclusion was that corruption is so rampant in the British Virgin Islands among officials and the government that it recommended that the territory should have its constitution suspended and it should be returned to direct rule by London, um, not. Permanently, Oof. just temporarily, as a sort of oh yeah, just temporarily. yeah. Just, just temporarily, just just temporarily. Sure. Um, I, I should note here that the the premier the premier uh, of the BVI uh, Andrew Fahey, uh was just arrested a few days ago. I think last you know kind of middle of last week by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency on drug trafficking charges. He's in he appeared in court in Miami, I believe, uh, just this week, and and is you know in some legal trouble, but. the the inquiry doesn't have to do with that case, apparently. It kind of predates um, his, his situation. Uh, nevertheless, uh, this is something that's now being considered uh, in London, and I'm sure Fahi's legal case is is feeding into uh, whatever decision is likely to come. The Organization of East Caribbean States uh, put out a statement on Tuesday of this week uh, it was fairly scathing. Uh, they called it, I want to get this right, uh, they called the possibility of restor- the restoration of direct rule over the B- uh, the, B- the British Virgin Islands uh, a retrograde step in the evolution of the democratic process that is inconsistent with the United Nations' proclamation of human rights to be free of colonial rule. So uh, Agreed. <laughs> they're not happy with this. Um, I'm sh- I would imagine the people of the British Virgin Islands would not be super happy to be ruled directly again from London. London, either, but I think you know for for a a relatively you know place that we don't talk about a lot on American prestige British Virgin Islands, um, this this is a fairly interesting development, and we'll, we'll I think pay attention to what goes on next.
0: Thanks very much, Derek. Uh, And I'm also going to say something I don't usually say, which is please like and review our show on the various podcast apps, whatever you listen to our show on. Also, please head to AmericanPrestigePod.com and sign up for our free email list. And also, please subscribe to our premium feed. We're a 100% listener-supported show, and we really can't do anything without you. And as always, thank you for listening. And please enjoy our interview with Sylvain Larcher about the recent French elections.
1: Yes. Pump yes. yes. yes.
0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison. And we're very happy and excited to be joined by Cilliane Larcher, who is currently a tenured research fellow in political science at the French National Center for Scientific Research. And she's also a fellow at the Du Bois Institute at Harvard. And she's a specialist in French politics. um, And we're uh, looking today to talk a little bit about the French election. So Cilliane, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Daniel and Derek, for inviting me, for welcoming me to this conversation. Thank you.
0: Uh, we're, we're very excited Absolutely. you could be here. Um, and so why don't we just start with a very basic question i think that was
1: one of the nicest thanks we've ever gotten thanks yeah by far yeah people (laughs) some people
0: some people know how to respect and be nice (laughs) so many academics are like okay let's go (laughs) no but thank you so much (laughs) cillian uh so why don't we just start at the beginning which is what happened in the french elections and and what do you think this suggests about contemporary french politics the moment that we are in in 2022
2: Okay, so what is happening now, it's in the continuity, but with some transformations uh, with what already happened five years ago. Emmanuel Macron, the current president, former minister of François Hollande, was a new figure in the political landscape of France. Five years ago, he presented a new political discourse saying that he would break the lines between left and wing. And apparently this worked five years ago. But already five years ago, we were in prisons with um, Marine Le Pen, who step by step uh, became more and more popular. And this year, to me... I wouldn't say we have we are at the end of the process, but we are at a turning point of political uh, life in France and also in a very dangerous moment because uh, Macron showed during the last mandate that in fact the the lines between left and right were still available, but he showed he was mostly neoliberal. Uh, so it changed the political discourse of the right, and this is something very clear in the results of these last elections. Because five years ago, uh, François Fillon, the candidate of the classic right, was the third, uh, the third in the in the course in the race for uh, the elections, and this year, five years later. The 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 right lost a lot of citizens' voting and uh, Macron had the election, but with very complicated uh, situation due to the fact that Marine Le Pen kept uh, gathering to to her towards her more uh, votes from French electors. I think we will have to develop that more, but just. I think this is the landscape we are facing now.
0: So maybe, I mean, you're a historian and, and you've studied, you know, a lot of French history and contemporary politics. So if we were trying to place this election in a long durée, um, sort of a longer history, what do you, th- how do you think it relates to the previous French politics and what do you think it portends for the future? Kind of thinking of large themes, you know, related to gender,
2: capital, race, there are several points to to stress. First, to me, this election, I, I, I know mostly post-colonial history, post-colonial politics of, of France, but I usually in my works locate that in a broader national and international context. So I I will give you a a response that may not be the one you will hear from someone else. The
0: best responses are the ones (laughs) that I don't even expect. Perfect.
2: But uh, firstly, to me, there are several shifts in the political discourses in France, both on the left and on the right. On the right, it seems that the recent president we had since maybe, I don't know if we should start from François Mitterrand, but I would say that François Mitterrand was the socialist president uh, of France in 1981. And after him, we had um, Jacques Chirac. And to, to since that this shift in the political majority of French people going step by step, towards neoliberalism, it seems that we are now in a very moment of a shift in the political conception of the the social state in France. And in some way, we can say that both the left and the right helped to be in, contributed to be in this situation today. Emmanuel Macron inerienates uh, something that was already done by uh, François Hollande, who was considered as someone from the left because he was the former president of the Socialist Party. François Hollande was the one who uh, proposed a law to change the the code of uh, work in France. So the law of work in France, before, before François Hollande with Nicolas Sarkozy, we already had... Shift in the social state about health insurance. Sarkozy introduced the way to pay for healthcare differently with a more neoliberal basis than in the past. So progressively, social life by a lot of French people have towardly went in a, in a more neoliberal way. Secondly, about the social discourse from the left. There are other points to, to underline. Maybe that the French left has difficulty to address a political discourse that can uh, gather both race, class, gender, all together, in the way of envisioning the social links, envisioning social justice, envisioning also what is French citizenship. And when I say that, it's because maybe you know that in France, the debate over race is very, very controversial. I personally know it very well. And when I mention that, I want to say that this discourse is still though race is something outside of the official political uh, discourse in the left and also obviously in, in, the, in the right wing, the the issue of immigration has been during the last decades something considered as um, a bar defining the political identities between left, uh, left wing and right wing. And it seems that in the context of the legacy of post-colonial immigration, the increase of unemployment, the increase of the effects of social policies on workers, both white and non-white people. And in addition to that, the recent context of the Islamist attacks, all that created a focus on the issue of immigration in the political discourse, maybe since more than 10 years now or close to that. Uh, I wouldn't say if it was in 2012 with the first attacks by Mohamed Mehra, or in 2015 with the attacks by uh, the major attacks at Le Bataclan and Charlie Hebdo in Paris in 2015. So... This issue of immigration was the way to introduce the issue of race and also to crystallize hatred, reject, and also from some part of the French population, but also this new context created difficulties by the French left to build the discourses that I was talking about, about social justice, about redistribution, about how is French citizenship if we have to take into account social, economical difficulties by French people. And also, in addition to that, the fact that a huge number of non-white French are confronted to discriminations and that that is uh, proved by data uh, in France.
0: So that's really interesting, and I want to actually talk about race for a second, because many of our listeners, most of our listeners, if not all, are in the United States, um, and race and racial discourses have long been a part of American political history, has long been you know, a part of the discourse, and I'm sure that's, that's similar in France. But could you maybe um, just give a little bit of a sense about how race functions differently in French political discourse versus American political discourse? And how is that important? And what does that mean? And I'm sure you could get, talk about this for 30 hours. <laughs> so just whatever you think is is most important for people who are not familiar at all with France and whatnot.
2: Two things. Race in the U.S. and race in France, though they both existed, exist, are shaped differently. And even for me as a black woman in the U.S., I see, even in my body experience, the difference between France and the U.S. Just to mention that the impact of slavery in the United States is uh, going through social links, relations with institutions, and also political discourses and policies uh, in the U.S. I I don't want to say, I I am not saying that it's, it's not the same in France, but I want to say that this historical built has been different in the French, I would, maybe I should say in the Francophone context, due to the fact of the the legacy of the colonial relationship between France and its officially former uh, colonies. And when I say colonies, I think, yes, of the French Caribbean where I am from, but, Mostly of Sub Saharan Africa and also Maghreb, and also uh, colonies in the Indian Ocean. This colonial politics of race has been related in the long durée to the conception of two things to the French conception of French civilization and also to French citizenship. And the both were very, very close even in the conception the French law had to that. I want to say that race in the colonial context, and this has consequences in the contemporary France, was firstly equivalent of the performative uh, expression of French civilization. So it's, yes, it's whiteness, but it's something a little more than whiteness. It's, also say, the issue of manners and habits. And this brings me to something very important in the transformations of political discourse on race recently in france and i and i have in mind the way that france targets in particular islam and in particular the way that you cannot think of race in France today without thinking of the huge level of Islamophobia. Uh, even the word Islamophobia, it seems controversial for colleagues like me. I, I have colleagues at the CNRS, French National Center for Scientific Research, who reject the word. Uh, you are very serious sociologists and historians of immigration and of. Low social classes who deny the meaningfulness of Islamophobia. So this says a lot about how in France we speak of race without using the categories of race, but we use these, we use all the words you, we use all the labels and in, and concretely we use religious labels. We use ethnic labels. I don't know how to say it to, in fact, racialize people, racialize groups. And during the last five years with Macron, the fact that we had new attacks, the fact that we had also the increase of poverty, all that contributed to force some uh, French uh, citizens to make a kind of logical link between what they consider to be the threatened by Islam and workers from outside and what which workers. It's something very confused, maybe for, even for themselves. But the threatened represented by Islam and the immigration uh, from the former post-colonies of Maghreb uh, had con- a concrete impact on French Muslims, and also uh, to some French voters who considered that the new political discourse by Marine, new if I if I can say that, by Marine Le Pen, uh, targeting what she calls "priorité nationale," which means French before everything, Frenchness before everything, and Frenchness, which means for her whiteness, and maybe Catholicism, and European identity, continental identity. I am not sure when she says French over the West means people like me who are French for centuries. So I just want to say that all that may be created for some white French uh, voters, but not only, maybe we will speak about the French anti votes created a kind of acceptability of the um, rad- official radicalism Marine Le Pen pretended to represent in the public sphere. And or the fact that Emmanuel Macron went further on the neoliberalism opened a room for people who wanted to try something new, who wanted a simplistic Way of changing social link and also social rights, maybe uh, in, on a social, economical level for them. I don't know if I replied exactly to what was. No,
0: question. that was great. That That's was great. Really I was good. just talking to Derek. I know Derek has a question. Sorry, Derek.
1: Yeah, so I'd like to talk a little bit more about Macron and I'd like to talk about the last five years. Um, and in particular, what, in, in your view, were people's expectations? when macron was elected it's it's easy now to sort of view him as the uber establishment candidate but in 2017 he was the youngest president ever elected in french history he had this youthful kind of uh vibe to him he was outside the traditional two-party system i can see where there was a a, maybe a sense that this is this is something different this is going to be a change not only um has he you know sort of gone as you say just kind of continued even further along the the neoliberal line Uh, But when it comes to things like social issues, like, you know, when he when he and when I I think when he feels backed into a corner politically, his instinctive uh, kind of move is to the right. It's to, uh, you know, try and steal voters from the Le Pen bloc by going after, uh, you know, some restricting the rights of Muslims or doing something that, uh, you know, kind of would appeal to that that type of voter. And I wonder if there's been uh, and, and maybe this is this is part of the reason he didn't do, his, do quite so well this time around. Uh, if there's been any sense of disappointment with how the last five years have gone and, and how he's governed.
2: I think that the vote of today is very different for, from the vote of five years ago. Five years ago, there was maybe a kind of fatigue of the policies by Sarkozy and François Hollande first. And uh, Macron represented really, and you're right, mentioning the fact that he was very young, he's still young in French history, and he he was uh, the image of a kind of modernity, uh, and also the political discourse he had, saying that, okay, we would break the lines between left and right, was something more appropriate to the changes the world were facing, and this attracted to him voters. But according to surveys, those voters were mostly quite old people, people from the middle class who could consider that he would uh, he would be uh, he, he would protect their uh, uh, social conditions. And he won the vote, but you you have to have in mind that during the first the first election five years ago, the right was still there, and the division among the left was something good for him to be elected. This is something we cannot uh, forget that today it's something very different. He has been elected to prevent France from falling down into fascism, I think that. We cannot avoid the huge level of abstention this time. Uh, we have close to 30%, 28% of people who didn't go to vote this time. This means that a lot of French voters how, uh fed up, if I can say that, with the political systems that push them to choose between two evils, due to the fact that in the French Republic the president has a lot of power, a huge political powers. Some historians and political scientists even talk about the Republican monarchy, and it's not it's not so false to say that. So today, uh, to me, Macron has not been elected because French people side with his policy, I, I mostly think that they are disappointed with his policy, even the ones who voted for him, even the oldest generation of the baby boom who felt more socially comfortable with his policy because they were not targeted directly by some decisions he made. Um, we also have people in the, among the left who are very Uh, resentful against the the law he took about health insurances in France, the the welfare system, the decisions he made about the age of retirement, the decisions he made also on the more identity politics level, if I can say that, about what he called uh, separatism law, the law against what he called separatism that was in fact targeting French Muslims in the continuity of the events of the attacks. This law contributed to feed the political discourse of the far right. So Macron contributed to reinforce the political discourse of the far right and in some way contributed to give more room to this political discourse and its political actors. And this is, this is why we have, at the end of the day, Éric Zemmour uh, among the, the candidates. And Éric Zemmour, a former journalist, something absolutely new in politics, not in, not in politics in discourse, but in politics as an activity, as a job, if I can say that, he had a quite good score during this first participation to a presidential election. So... Macron, we we, we all we already know that he will continue the same way he did. He already said with sub, some subtility uh, because he didn't say everything during the campaign. He didn't really campaign. He said he, well, be, he was busy with the war in Ukraine. We, we all understood that it was a huge issue on his plate, but he was not really involved in the political campaign. So we have a candidate. Who won an election without going far in the political campaign to win the race, and we already know that he will go further from what he already he already did during five years. We have uh, reports given to the European institutions showing in which direction he wants to continue going, and maybe we will have a new situation is. What do we do with all those far right voters in the public sphere? What do we do with this political climate now? So polarized uh, between a very weak left and a stronger uh, right. This is something very problematic, I think. And... Which legacy we will have to face five years later in in five years, so all that is still uncertain. But we know that Macron won't change the cap, the 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 target, the direction. And uh, the, the the major maybe question is what the left is ready to do with. This political situation in which way they can transform their discourse and in which way they can address sensitive questions they are not usually ready to confront with.
0: So one of the things that has happened throughout the North Atlantic has been the rise of the right and the rise of the far right in particular. Um, and so in some sense, this is an international phenomenon. And yes. of course, it's always linked to, to local local events. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you think first in France, there has been a resurgence of the far right in the last, like you said, 10-ish years, 10 plus years, um, and how do you think that relates or doesn't relate as it may be, to international currents of the rise of the international far right.
2: I think that what you are men- mentioning is 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 very is key in the debate because actually France cannot be separated from the rest of the world. And we are confronted in Europe and in France too to the the way that global the global transformations of capitalism in the figures of neoliberalism are getting more and more and more powerful in the in in European societies. And this uh reinforces the right more generally in in France. And we I have to mention that French society is not traditionally a left society even though Seen from the US, it cannot be the same, but traditionally, we only had, uh, since the beginning of the Fifth uh, Republic, only two uh, presidents that were from the left, uh, François Mitterrand and François Hollande. And I have also to mention, in addition to that, uh, once five circumstances of Social, uh, Socialist Party government under uh, uh, President Chirac with Lionel Jospin, but more generally, the right ideas are more diffused, more consensual in French society. Though we have a strong social welfare state, so we have that for, uh, on one on one hand, and on the other, on the other hand, the recent transformations. That even the left contributed to have to face, to face in the in the transformations of the social welfare in France. Contributed the fact that the left, even the left adapted to the rules of neoliberalism, contributed to the reinforcement of the ideas of the right. This is what I want to say. And the fact that the European institutions. Uh, made compromise with neoliberalism in UK, in in Spain, but even those things have changed recently. For a while in Spain, uh, in uh, Germany, and more uh, obviously in Hungary, where you have the foul right for very specific reason. I think that the fact that Marine Le Pen made a a, a mix between a social discourse to attract low-class voters, in addition to the fact that she, what does she propose? She proposed to close France to the national boundaries, but she doesn't proposed to dismantle neoliberalism. She proposed to adapt it to national boundaries. But in addition to this vision, very nationalist and racist, she has a social discourse to low social class workers who have been uh, the victims of the neoliberal policies, taken by European unions and also by French state in the last decade. So we are confronted to an ambiguous legacy of the consequences of the neoliberalism in French society, in particular uh, for the most underprivileged people. And in addition to that, the very specific history of French fascism, French racism, and also French obsession with Islam and Islamophobia, due to the huge presence of immigrants—not immigrants, but children French from uh, former origins of uh, the former colonies of Maghreb.
1: I'm curious about um, you. You talked uh, a little bit of a little bit ago about voter turnout and the concern over. Uh, the high level of voter turnout or a high level of uh, abstention, basically in the in the runoff, mm-hmm. um, which I, I'm I this kind of makes me laugh because it's it's very contextual. Like seventy two percent turnout in the United States would be the the most <laughs> attended presidential election in history. Um, so it's it's very context based. But I wonder what the discourse is, uh, if there is any, uh, around the 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 relatively low turnout. You know here. When we talk about turnout, I mean, as I'm sure you know, it's it's wrapped up a lot in things that are specific to American federalism. You know, Republican-run states making access harder. You know, cities that uh, underserve particular neighborhoods, things like that. Um, but there is also some, you know, discussion of disillusionment and and uh, you know, people dissatisfied with the system. Uh, I'm curious what if there's any conversation about this in France, and if it's if it if it gets into particular. Populations that are kind of opting out of the process, or um, you know, anything like that.
2: I don't know the details of the abstention, but what I what I could say is it it's a symptom of the crisis of the French political system due to the fact that everything's everything are showing that choosing one person. With so much power, uh, even though we have the National Assembly, the National Assembly is under the power of the presidency. It has to be uh, ruling the decisions by uh, the government and the prime minister is chosen by the French president. So it's a very presidential regime. It seems that this regime should be... To, and also you have those discussions among political scientists, historians uh, about what kind of regime we, we should we choose in the future. You have conversations about a uh, sixth republic with more powers to the National Assembly, to the deputies, and the fact that for the second time, French electors are confronted to the wo- the world's choice um for for many of the voters voting not for someone but against and against maybe it has been already the same in the past but i want to say that we are maybe at the highest level of this uh impasse this contradiction this this uh trap uh, for voters between choosing the the less worse to the highest level of what people don't want to see, and in in uh, and, and in fact uh, fascism. So this the fact also I want to add something that the classical parties of the right and of the left are so are so low in the results of the recent elections underlines also the high crisis of the um, political discourse and also of the, the the systems of representation itself because it seems that those parties don't gather any more than, less than in the past, uh, voters. And we are now in a very polarized political sphere and... In the middle of that, to me, in the middle of the, the, the high level of abstention says the fact that in a lot of French voters are in the middle of that and they don't want to choose for the two evils, if I can say that. They, they say something about the system.
0: So one thing that I wanted to ask, and that leads perfectly to it, is why is the system incapable of producing a candidate that would allow people to vote positively for something as opposed to um, vote for the lesser of two evils or vote against someone? Um, Because in the American context, you know, there's a million explanations. We don't have a parliamentary system. We have these two gigantic political parties. Um, it's a collection of interests, not really organized around ideology, though that's more true for the Democrats today. Neoliberal capitalism has captured everyone, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you think it is in the French context that prevents the um, the, the, the pushing forward or the emergence of a candidate that could really engender significant approval from, from amongst a, a enough number of people?
2: Uh, you have some resemblances between the two contexts, though they are specific, obviously, but it seems that, seen from France, the American system is, the in the American system, the par- parliamentarism is stronger than in the French system. But to me, the fact that the left in progressively came closer to the right, helped someone like Emmanuel Macron saying that there is no difference between left ideas and right ideas. So this created also um, a confusion in the political offer and Marine Le Pen uh, takes uh, advantage of, of that. And the fact that to me, there are also Legal com- complexities of the French system due to the fact that French citizens have to vote for one person who is supposed to represent all the ideals that a society will follow for a while. And maybe we have we we are now at the at the end of this way of thinking uh, political participations and also. Uh, how do we uh, create the, the 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 political links between French citizens and their political class, uh, political uh, representatives? This is something I, I have to mention, and maybe also that the fact that the the recent policies that went to people. When you ask to French people their point of view about the, the French policies in the last decades, they 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 say as a result that they don't see many differences. So the global context contributed to make things less clear for French voters. And we are not exactly in even though we speak of a change of political system and the conversations more go for uh, in the in direction of uh, more parliamentarism par- than a uh, presidential regime we don't know exactly maybe you someone more uh, used to those uh, research could give a, a, a more accurate response but it seems to me that we don't know exactly in which direction we go we should go for this addition of parliamentarism.
0: Just one question that I had um, is that I remember when I was in graduate school in 2007, and there were several books released about the hijab in France, there was a lot of discussion about the role that the quote-unquote war on terror played in reshaping um, French politics. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. Does that discourse of terrorism, quote-unquote, still exist in French politics? Um, or has that been refracted in a new way when people talk about race? Because I don't know if Derek agrees. We hear a lot less about, uh, about quote-unquote, terrorism um, in the United States than we used to. Uh, but it w- it's been so connected to Islamophobia. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that in the context of the election.
2: The discourse has been transformed in the last uh, years uh, and was mostly focused on the issue of laïcité, the French principle of secularism, uh, considered as a central pillar of the French Republic, one of those, one of the central pillars. The the conversation uh, in particular, I I already said that, was mostly, uh, even though Black French people are targeted by racism, we we have also in France racial profiling by French police. The political discourse, the one you will hear in the media, the one you will hear from intellectuals, the one you will hear uh, even sometimes by co- scholars and, of, and obviously by some um, of politicians is mostly related to how French society should have a more visible, officially more visible pr- principle of laicite and makes laicite become more vivid. In the French way of living, and this meant how do we create a narrow room for the expression of Muslim religious practices? And during the political campaign, Marie Le Pen said, uh, I have to, so to say something about the, the transformation of the political, the discourse on race, but Marie Le Pen said that she would prevent absolutely any presence of the scarf in the public sphere in France. And this is not something that the law uh, says. The law of laïcité is a law that makes a division, a strong, firm division, between the beliefs of the citizens, which are considered to be private, and So that have to be preserved. This is what the spirit of the law of laicity says. And on the other hand, the uh, fact that the state, the political institutions, don't have to engage in religious beliefs by the citizens. This is the spirit in 1905 of the law of laicite said very briefly. And in the last decades, the conversation about Islam was more and more about in which way wearing the scarf was a threaten to French principles and, as I said earlier, to Frenchness. And Marine Le Pen said that she didn't want to see in the public sphere uh, the presence, the very presence of the scarf. She even said that the scarf was a symbol of terrorism and Islamic terrorism. So for this reason, she didn't want to see it because it was an official uh, threat to French ways of living. And beside that, step by step in a more, if I should say mainstream, but with bracket, you heard more and more a discourse uh, about uh, grand remplacement, the great replacement, the fact that white French would have been more and more in time being replaced by non-white persons and in particular people from Africa and from Maghreb. And we know, according also to surveys, that it's not absolutely... France is not invaded by any African or uh, any uh, Arab invasion, obviously. But this discourse was uh, and is a way to reinforce nationalistic discourse and also a strategy to not addressing the economical and social divisions in social society directly uh, due to neoliberalism in French society and uh, elsewhere in Europe.
1: I think this is... um maybe a good place to wrap up for for today, but we would love to have you back. I guess um, my last question would be, um, obviously nobody has a crystal ball. It's a long way away. Um, But what are your initial kind of impressions of what the landscape may look like in 2027? Is the French center going to continue to rely on this appeal like it's us or the fascists? Or are they going to find a way to, to try to re-energize that space? Is the left going to going to be able to m- try to move into what I think is a, a pretty large political piece of political real estate that's been vacated by Macron uh, as he's moved further right? Or are we looking at like a right versus right, basically, uh, election uh, kind of forming in, in five years?
2: Obviously, so many things can happen in five years. Years we have a war now in Europe, and we don't know what the global context will create in in Europe and also in French society. To be honest, and 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 I will give my perspective from where I am, and that means from a French Caribbean scholar working on post-colonial issues in, on France. I am very, very, very pessimistic. About, um, when I say that, I, I don't know if Marine Le Pen will win. I don't know if she will go into the race to the, to the race, uh, for the third time. I don't know. I think that Macron will do all while he said he will, he will try. He will try to do all what he said he, he, he was planning. So I think that the welfare state will be weakened. Uh, I also think that uh, we will have more ne- neoliberalism, and this is directly related to your last, the last part of your question: what the left has to say, what does it have to to propose uh, in terms of objectives, in terms of discourses, and this is where I am uh, very, very pessimistic. It seems to me that the French left. Has huge difficulties to renew its own um, yes political discourse on social justice due to the fact that even though we have a strong discourse over class about class in France, the way the racial issue is envisioned is still, to me, still embedded in colonial legacies. Even in the left, you have politicians who consider that Islam and the scarf is something problematic for French society. Even in the left, you have members of the elites who consider that political autonomy by minorities are something dangerous for French society. Even in the left, you have the discourse about communitarism, considered that it's an importation of the American divisions in the French society. But to me, this lens of pseudo-importation is a way to deny the impact of racial discriminations in France. It's a way to deny how French society is connected still today to uh, its former colonies. And if the French left is not able to gather towards itself white poor workers and non-white poor workers, people of the suburbs, the banlieue, and it's not able to address the issue of post-colonialism in a more, um, not inclusive, it would not be exactly the the good word, but in a more obsessed social justice way, to me, we will be in the same place because this implies two things, addressing firmly the consequences of neoliberalism on French society and from that, addressing how uh, race and discriminations are not separated from the consequences of the increase of neoliberalism in French society. Because the first targeted are the poorest in the in the banlieue, for example. And when you, when you go more in detail in French society that is not reduced to the urban uh, places, the consequences of... Uh, the weaken of French industries in more rural or neo-rural areas, Uh, the transformations of the public services due to liberalism cannot be separated to the issue of uh, discriminations. If the French left is not able to connect those issues and in addition to that, to connect these issues to the recent issue of ecological stakes, we will, to me, we will be very close to where we are today. But I, I don't know. I wanted to add some very specific comments about the fact that paradoxically, Marine Le Pen won in the French Caribbean, in Martinique and Guadeloupe, the islands of MSR and in particular for Martinique, and Edouard Glissant and Fanon, and this creates this created this results created a huge uh, rowing among the antians uh, commentators and um, intellectuals And this to me is we, we don't have enough time to think seriously about that but this is maybe this has to be understood at two levels first, the fact that, that Emmanuel Macron still was don't want to address the post-colonial legacy of uh, French uh, history. The fact that France is still an empire, and in the past years, it didn't really address uh, what kind of new policies he could introduce in the relationship between the French Caribbean and uh, France, and secondly, the fact that at the first tour, the majority of the electors of the French Caribbean voted for Mélenchon, and Mélenchon is the far left. They voted for a social discourse of redistribution, of social justice, of uh progressism, if I can say that shortly. And... At the second tour, they elected Marine Le, Marine Le Pen surprisingly, in a context of very, very huge abstention. Fifty five percent of French uh, of the French Caribbean voters in Martinique and fifty three in Guadeloupe didn't go to vote. But in for some of the voters who went to the to put their ballots. They, they, they voted, unfortunately, for the, the, the worst choice on a very political uh, level on the meaning of, of the stake of what would be a president like Marine Le Pen in the French Republic. But we have to understand that also as this switch from the far left to the far right as a, um, a strong rejection of Macron policy uh, firstly, and also to the fact that the general political system between France and the French Caribbean is maybe at a turning point. I would not speak about autonomy or independence because it's still a controversial issue, but it seems that we are in an absence of perspective for uh, the French Caribbean voters that has a uh, a translation in the the votes. And this has something in the future we will have to think more deeply and that the French Caribbean societies will have to address more firmly to understand what kind of political imagination we have to reshape, uh, to transform, the political links between France and those uh, islands.
0: Selyane Larcher, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We loved having you on and we'd love to have you back to talk more about French politics, your own research. Um, We really appreciate it and uh, have a great rest of your day. And everyone, thank you so much for listening.
2: Thank you to you both.